Hello everyone and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry and this week I'm joined by Alicia and Kaz. But there needs to be a bit of an acknowledgement because we're going to start doing podcasts maybe a little bit differently. You see, when we record podcasts, they tend to be a lot more fun and in my personal experience better when we do the bulk of the conversation in person. This means that sometimes we stack these conversations and then it's hard to integrate an element of sort of topical news because they might have been recorded a week or two previously. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a preliminary conversation where we discuss some news and which we record remotely. And then we're going to go into a different conversation that we had. So with that in mind, Alicia, I believe you prepared some news pieces for us to help understand what the hell is going on in mountain biking at the moment, as well as some of the biggest news stories. Sure, I'm glad to be here. And we're all just recovering from Crankworks right now. So it seems like that is what we should focus on this time with news. They had a bunch of racing through the week, actually about 10 days, so more than a week. Race results, Enduro was dominated by Jesse Melamed and Brittany Fillan, who both are sort of local heroes. Joyride, Emil Johansson, kind of unsurprisingly. Sweden Style was won by Garrett Meckham and Harriet, known as Has Burbage Smith. Solemn, Jackson's Frew, and also Harriet Has Burbage Smith. Whipoff was dominated by Eddie Reynolds and Vinnie Armstrong. And then Pump Track was Duhoto, Ariki Penne, and Keelani Hines. RDH, unsurprisingly, was Sam Bleckensop and Jill Kittner. And then we saw the 1199 downhill race for the first time, won by Jacob Jewett and Valley Hall. That was a lot of a week. I'm pretty excited to see that 1199 downhill race being just so challenging. And then the women's jump jam that we got to watch at the end of the week after the joyride event, um, but on the same joyride course and just having everyone show up and throw down in a non-competitive event that gave them the chance to progress, but without the pressure that we often see. So the future is pretty bright. Kaz, what was your favorite part of the week? Um, the events aren't my favorite part of the week. It was the riding. I really liked the riding in Whistler. So I did a lot of good riding, but, um, yeah. What else? I mean, I do like riding. Well, sorry, not riding. I did not ride joyride. I liked watching <laughs> joyride though. It's always, sure. it's, you know, it's a spectacle and it's impressive. And we had just being that close and seeing those tricks in person. I still don't really understand all of them, how they're possible, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's always fun. Just kind of like a culmination of the week, at least for me is watching that. Yeah, I'm not sure I really understand the tricks either, but they're very cool to see. Guys, what do you think about, hmm, a lot of people watching at home, you might send in the comments, about complaints about, I think the wind's fair, the light delay. Is that not a bit? No, that's fair because, I mean, it's kind of weird, but the last, or let's see, third to last feature is kind of a step up onto a platform and you would be facing right into the sun. And if you're trying to spin or do anything and you can't see, I mean, it happens sometimes even when you're just riding the Whistler bike park, there's like on dirt merchant, there's a step up that if you hit it the wrong time of day, you're so blind and I'm just trying to dead sailor it. And if I was trying to spin, it would be, I wouldn't want that to be my contest run, but, um, yeah, I agree. Like the wind delays are always frustrating, especially because the event always happens in the afternoon, which for good reason, because that's when most people want to watch a thing. No one wants to wake up at 7am to watch the flippy spinners go, but it tends to be calmer in the morning. Um, and then, yeah, unfortunately it was just a one run format. So we didn't get to see people try to better their first run. So Crankworx is also one of the times when companies release a lot of their new projects. And so we've been riding a lot of trail bikes recently, or specifically Kaz and Henry have been riding trail bikes recently. Kaz, what do you think makes a good trail bike? Um, I mean, for me, a good trail bike is versatility. It needs to be something that can do a little bit of everything. I mean, we have a lot of, you know, the enduro bikes tend to be long and slack and they're made just for 
basically go downhill with uphill just as a means to an end. Um, but then the trail bikes, I want something that's, that's fun both ways, you know, climbing, rolling terrain, a little bit more moderate stuff. And I'm also biased that I want my trail bike to be pretty good in the rough stuff too. So, um, yeah, we're in a good place. I think these days that trail bikes are more capable than ever. And there's a lot of cool options out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Henry, I know you've been spending time on the Cannondale Habit LT. How does that stack up against what Kaz just told us? I think it's probably there or thereabouts. I thought it was a really good bike. I thought it was very well all-rounded. I did find it interesting, though, that this bike is instead the LT, the long travel version. And that's with a 150 mil mil rear travel paired to 150 fork. And they also do the standard version, which has the same shock and the same the same layup and um, so, so it's the same layout and it's 130 mil paired to 140 mil fork. But I don't see any reason why you couldn't have the 140, 140 and still have the benefits of more travel, which I thought was kind of a bit daft because I think if I had my bike, it could possibly be, you know, I drop the travel to 140 and have the benefits of a slightly steeper head angle, maybe slightly more weight on the front, but still, you know, because with 140 mil stroke at the rear, if you set your bike to sag, assuming it's the same, say 30% sag on either, you're going to be sitting slightly deeper anyway. So I don't know, but I thought it was a really good bike, really well-rounded. And actually it's nice to see Cannondale kind of not doing anything daft, you know, <laughs> just making a good bike that isn't trying to change the world or revolutionize everything. They seem to be obsessed with, you know, one leg- legged forks in the front and then two shocks in the back. It's like, just guys, just everyone just calm down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for extra regular. Sometimes that's what you want. You don't need to, you just don't need things to be always wacky and crazy. I mean, for us, it's fun when we get on bikes that are kind of wild and out there, but oftentimes it's pretty, it's almost like a, a palate cleanser when you get on a bike like the habit. You're just like, oh, this feels nice. I'm at home. I don't have to think. It's not doing anything wacky. Just kind of works. So yeah, I think there's definitely a place for that. Well, I think also we've seen with that new Druid, for instance, that the first one, I mean, not geometry aside, but in terms of its layout was maybe more of an extreme proposition. Now they're like, actually, you know what? What do actually people want to ride a lot of the time? They want to ride something kind of easy and moderate and not not trying to be extreme. So that's it for the news this week. Now we're going to go into a conversation that Alicia and I had with Dan Wolf. Now, for those of you that don't know, Dan Wolf, EWS racer, run for a long time the Polygon Enduro Team setup. And we just wanted to sit down and talk with him about Kind of what's happening with the EDR, not EWS? What are the teething problems that could be around trying to synchronize it with World Cups? As well as who are some of the greatest enduro riders of all time? So this was a lot of fun to record. We did it in person in Whistler and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry and this week we are joined by Alicia Leggett and Dan Wolf. Now, if you follow the Pink Bike Instagram account and find yourself on a scroll through the uh, EWS weekends, the man behind the camera getting all those clips is Dan. And he is not only iPhone extraordinaire, but Dan, you're also a racer. You've had a long career in racing. Do you want to tell us a bit about who you ride for, what your kind of day-to-day life looks like and how your year takes over yeah um so hey everyone this is like my first big podcast so a bit nervous but uh we'll see how it goes um <laughs> i am a professional mountain bike racer for polygon factory racing it is a team i helped uh, start up so you know my heart and soul went into that um i came from racing downhill 
In fact, before that, my first mountain biking session was on a BMX up the hills. Um, and then I eventually got a mountain bike, snapped that in half, got into downhill racing, did World Cups, kind of changed tact when I saw World Enduro starting. I thought, hmm, that looks really good, very dynamic. And uh, yeah, been doing it ever since. Basically became a person that uh, had to become pro because I put so much work into it between injuries, training, traveling, money. Um, and yeah, I'm uh, really glad it worked out, but it was a long journey. And if it didn't work out, I guess I wouldn't be here and I'd just be that sad dude telling everyone that he used to be great. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah. If you'd had, and I suppose both of you are enduro, enduroers. Sure. If you'd had your time again, Dan, mm-hmm. and you were 16 years old, getting into, you know, downhill racing, do you think enduro would have pulled you as a, as a youth? Or do you think it's something that's maybe something for more the, the seasoned mountain bike racer? Okay. That's actually a great question. Um, I can see why you do this for a living. <laughs> oh, I'm um, bluffing way through, hey. You're very good at this, Henry. Thank uh, you. I still don't think yeah. I've done a big podcast. Me and Kathy used to do them in the side of a motorway. Yeah. Um, with no air. We had to turn the aircon off because oh, it was man. too loud in the van. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the level I'm at, really. Yeah. And now we've actually got mic booms, which is a bit, is a bit much for yeah, us. Yeah, we're it, booming. I think it's a little unnerving for all of us. Yeah, it feels a bit... The level of expectation with these road mic booms that I'm not entirely comfortable with. But, but yeah. we can try to live up to it. It gives us yeah. a good benchmark. Yeah, <laughs> totally. We'll boom it. But do you think enduro is? A- um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those things, like, it's actually hard to know because it came into my life when I was in my 20s, yes. you know. So for everyone out there, I'm in my 30s now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it came into my life when I was in my 20s. I was looking for something different anyway. I was kind of, you know, kind of sick and tired of the rootless nature of downhill racing at World Cups you go all the way over there you maybe slip a pedal go over the bars and that is it you're not qualifying so yeah I think it's hard to know exactly what way I would have went I think if I hadn't like a friend group that had that understanding I feel like they would have pushed me into doing enduro when I was Mm. young just for the fitness side of things and the ability to read tracks quickly Um, and I've always been you know, big into listening to people if they've, if they're going to impart wisdom. But uh, I'd say as a young guy and the way I was, I was all into hitting features first and I was totally nuts. And you had, there's like a really good core of Irish riders, you know, mm. you've got Greg and Keelan. Yep. Did any of them, were they racing downhill with you in those days? Uh, yeah. So I'm actually older than two of them. Um, and Greg used to race downhill. So he's funny. Um, he said like, it's mad, but this is true. Everyone, Greg used to look up to me. Okay. Wow. So yeah, I, I looked Greg up to Callahan. you a lot too. You looked up to me. Oh fuck yeah! Like <laughs> you're taller than me though. <laughs> you were the first person I ever met that was like an actual had race world cups. Oh wow! And I was there like, oh my god, it's actually a thing. These people exist in the world. Wow. It was you know, so I actually used to look up to you too. What? Yeah, we That's can just bizarre. go down all the memories. Oh, I met you, I think, here at my second EWS ever, which was a very long time ago. Yeah, because Whistlers have been gone on for a while, haven't they? Yes. Yeah, and they're not easy. Actually, not a very long time ago. Probably um, like twenty eighteen or something. Mm. Okay, yep. Um, but they're yeah. all hard. Yeah, and was okay, and I, that's nice. And, and I was came, an all right experience. Well. All right, <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, no, look, I I've been kind of doing it longer than Greg and Keelan. Um, but they, Greg always did enduro before it was a sport. I swear mm. to God, he used to cycle to spins, and we'd session because downhill in Ireland back then is just walk up a track, ride down it. Mm. But he'd cycle the spins and cycle around the mountain and do different tracks. So he was doing enduro before, you know, he knew it was a, it was a thing. And I think it's, he's, yeah, he excelled from the early days straight away because I think he had that database in his head of how to 
how to do it, how to just ride a bike and, and read the track as it goes. So he's been kind of just good at that since the get-go. It, it's almost That's as if really cool. Bending yeah. around a mountain existed before Enduro. I know, I know. Yeah. Like, once that Enduro World Series happens, like, oh, do you do Enduro? But it was just mountain biking. But I have to say in Ireland, it was very much, it was polarizing. It was like, do you do downhill? Do you do XC? You know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And It's amazing how we yeah. can reduce something like mountain biking into something as regimented as Enduro and oversimplified. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really need to be that. Nah. Side note, I have a slight correction. I definitely met you earlier than 2018. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah, it was definitely yeah. before that, but I'm not going to say too specifically in case I'm wrong again what year it was. <laughs> to be honest, my memory, I, I've been doing this so long, I wouldn't know. Just blurs together. Yeah, it's like I know the difference between it's like, oh, I met you like a solid seven or eight years ago or mm-hmm. I met you last season. That's like, so, yeah, extremely understandable. I feel similarly yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, especially as well when you're interviewing people and... Mm-hmm. getting clips you're like who's that and yes. then yeah. like it's so and so you're like alright I need to watch it and if we because this podcast I like to talk about what Enduro is mm-hmm. where, where how it got to where it is and mm-hmm. also where it's going but if we go back 10 years ago for 10 years of the US <laughs> yeah yeah um, there was a time when it felt that it was quite brief there was a time where it was is Enduro sort of you'd see the big pros would go to Mountain of Hell they'd go to Meg Avalanche yeah and it was a really now it's kind of a fun kooky amazing event but not necessarily the pinnacle. But there was a time when all the pros would turn up and do that sort of stuff, hey? Uh, yeah, because honestly, it was Enduro. And, and I guess people didn't know what Enduro was and they just thought like, you go and race a 50-minute descent as one run and like, what is that? It's not even down on. You've got a camelback bag on and you got weird Nomad forks. Like I didn't even know they existed. And like, you know, strange bikes, high BBs, kind of short, just weird stuff. But um. Yeah, like it kind of went, it's gone full circle. So it went, not full circle, because I don't want to insult the Meg Avalanche and different events, because there's still like a decent amount of pros that go there. There is, but it was nearly like a testing ground in the early days. And yes. those people transferred over into World Enduros really well and quickly. And then World Enduros was finding its feet and it kind of like lulled off. And it's because it's a prestigious event and it's like, you know, predates World Enduros you still have those people always wanting to do it because they want to test themselves and say they've done it. But now I think contractually speaking, there's people now going, well, you know, New Proof wants you to be there yes. or Vitus Bikes or whoever. And I've noticed that now, like I'll get people asking like, hey, you're going to be mega this year. I'm like, nah, it's not, it's not my contract. I've done it five times. I'm, I'm good. But if we go back to those early days of Enduro, I yeah. want to talk about some of the big initial stars. Oh, yeah. I remember reading a, uh, an interview with Mark Weir Oh, yeah. And him saying that if you, I remember it was such a thing, he was like, if you rode a 32, because people were still on 32s then, oh, yeah. box mm. 32s, if you rode a 32 on a proper Enduro in Europe, you'd snap it. And I was there like, yeah. whoa, there's this crazy world happening. Yeah, yeah, you what would. is this? You people would. Just yeah. snapping forks. Ah! Yeah, you, you would. Like, <laughs> you would. Um, but it was an alien yeah. thought then because bikes had such an emphasis on being lightweight. Yeah. Lots of yeah. trail bikes came with 32 more forks. Yeah. Sure. And I remember having like chats with James Shirley about this. Like I traveled with him um, in the early days and we, we did a big Euro trip and um, he was like, oh, I don't know what tires to use. Like maybe I should do this and do that. And I was thinking, I just want whatever tires aren't going to puncture. Yes. Like I don't care about rolling. You know, I came from downhill as well. So like I had a different approach and um, I actually don't know what James came from, but he's just always biked. But he was like, oh, you know, rolling and then this and that. And I was like, I just don't want punctures. And I'd start riding a 29er in 2014, that new specialized. I remember, yeah. Uh, yellow and black. And actually, that's when I started to like pick up some pace. I was doing some good results, like qualified in the Mega Avalanche. First out of every single category was like the first onto the snow. And then the race, I was second off the snow. And 
and then we had to walk our bikes for ages and I ended up <laughs> sixth. So uh, turns out I need to get better at walking. But um, yeah, like those early days were mad because you kept thinking, oh yeah, we're getting better, we're getting better, as in the products are. Yes. But they weren't. Like the tires I used to puncture so much. Uh, the forks were all anywhere from like some people tried like 32, but they mostly were 34s. Then I had lyrics, which were 35 mil, 35 maybe. Mil, yeah. And um, mad flexi. Yes, it was lighter than what I'm on now, but nowhere. Like, I don't get mechanicals anymore. And I don't need to touch wood. Like, yes. obviously, I know what I'm doing more now, I guess. But yeah, you just, the amount of mechanicals. Like, so many people were in contention for a good result and then they just wrecked it. And um, oh, yeah, Jared it was Graves really, did that for years. Yes. Hey. Like, shifter uh, saddles. He's tires, a, a spare derailleur in his backpack, I'm pretty sure. Really? Yeah, Tracy Mosley yeah. also carried a good bit of stuff. She was brilliant though. And to be honest, Tracy was probably too good because she helped so many people. But mm. um, yeah, I think <sighs> it was the tracks as well. So Enduro knew when it started that it needed to hit the ground running with a bang and it needed to challenge kind of the world of like, it knew it was going to get judged. So it had to be impressive. And the bikes were nowhere near ready for that. You know, so some of the stuff we're doing now, we rode back then. Like we go back to venues, we revisit tracks. And it's like, how did I ride that on that bike? And so. Alicia. Yeah. What was the first bike that you rode to rate? Like, you know, the first race bike maybe you had. First race bike that ever. You thought, that, that, no, that you thought, wow, actually, this is a really great bike. Because not all bikes are created equal. Mm-hmm. And for instance, mm-hmm. I mean, speaking <laughs> of Enduro. Yeah. I think of Mick Hanna fanning about on those square one downhill bikes. Yeah. And now he's, I mean, they were weird. I mean, they were. Good for some things, but they were weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, um, they were very they out were like, there. They were like a soft set of skis. Mm-hmm. Really good for for lots of grip, but not actually good for really carving. And now he's on a Yeti, yeah. and he was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Yeah. What, yeah, can you remember your first bike where it was like, "This isn't mm-hmm. a long-legged XC bike. This is a genuinely good enduro bike." Right. Yeah, I had a Rocky Mountain Altitude from I think 2015 that was pretty good, and it was like it's arrived. I- I got into mountain biking a lot later than all of you did. Just <laughs> yeah, for context, there I started riding in maybe. 2012 or so and had i guess my first bike i ever raced on which is around when i started riding was this old cannondale scalpel from oh yeah around 2001 or 2002 wow it was an ancient it was one of the first lefty forks actually i was gonna say for for context we're here in whistler in crankworks Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was that the robin thurston lefty spec sure something (laughs) like that it was it was something special it got a lot of comments um but it served me really well it had that's enough travel for me i don't even know how much it had but it oh, was very reasonable yeah it would have been short travel i guess it was very short travel because i was racing xc at the time oh, and yeah. then yeah sort of moved to montana got a little bit burned out didn't really know what i was doing had like a pretty sweet hardtail in there for a little while but still sort of burned out on xc got a trail bike which was this 2015 rocky mountain altitude that was really eye-opening for me like i went i ended up working for well, Mammoth Mountain Bike Park as an instructor for a summer, just kind of when I was getting excited about gnarly riding. And yeah, it was just a game changer. Mm-hmm. I ended up breaking the frame later. Um, but up until that point, I had also, so I had a, like an inner tube wrapped around the chainstay to protect it, basically. Yep. Oh, yeah. And so it broke and it know. like kept riding just fine. And it was later when I was checking something else out that it was like, whoa, actually, like, the reason this bike is having problems is bigger than any individual like component you put on the frame. It's that the frame is broken. And it sounds like I have a, I have a similar 
Well, it sounds was. like you, Dan, the <laughs> yeah. first, one of the first bikes that was really, really good was yeah. that Enduro. And yeah. then you went to Transition, hey? Yes, yeah. So that, that bike was actually, like, that was my game changer oh, moment. Cool. Because before that, people were like, oh, 29er wheels are coming out of this and that. I was thinking, nah, that's not going to stick. They're the too big. The first 29ers were, you know? like, very not fun. I know, but... Yeah, and I guess like, you know, at the time it was warranted to feel like that. You know, I'd done all my downhill racing and nearly said my downhill career, but I didn't. But I had all my <laughs> down racing was all done 26 inch wheels. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was like pretty apprehensive. Then I got that and I was thinking, oh my God, like you could do everything. I ended up cracking that uh, seat stay or no chain stay actually. So your story really hit oh, home yeah. because I was during a world enduro, it cracked and I am um, cable tied on a spanner um, on nice. the inside of it <laughs> with yeah. loads of cable ties. So I could, cause I finished the day in 25th and I was like, I can't not do this. Yes. I can't, mm-hmm. I have to keep going. Wow. But um, yeah, that bike was a game changer. And then though, because I increased the speed, because I was able to, then it kind of showed up some other issues, you know, yes. like mm-hmm. it, it, the frame was ahead of the game and the components weren't. So yes. wheels, tires, you know, were the big nightmare. Yeah, and I, mean, I remember around that era, um, especially I did the 27.5 bike, which was kind of a hodgepodge, the enduro, the initial one. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And they also, I remember they having radial spokes on the mm-hmm. wheels coming as stock and it was like yeah. that's wild now um, if we do go back because I, I love the early days of Enduro yeah, I know yeah. we say it all the time but I loved it when it was like let's wheel two 5,000 metre days they gave you a packed lunch and they said go have at it Yeah, yeah. if we think about those early days I think one of my favourite seasons of racing would have been that Jerome Clements yeah. um, Jared Graves kind of coming from different parts yeah. of the sport we had this like Olympian mm-hmm. sort of who'd come from a traditional mountain biking world then this Jerome Clements guy who's like this Enduro guy and apparently he was just the best bike handler yeah. ever. Yeah. I think were, that is part of why Enduro is so unique and yeah. so special that it brings those things together. It's yeah. such a great merger between athleticism and technicality yeah. that we, I don't think, have seen anywhere else in the sport at all. Yeah. It's bizarre. There's so many elements to make a great racer. And mm-hmm. you were there, Dan. Yeah. I mean, sometimes in the field you have a different opinion to how we perceive in the media. Yeah. Who was... Who would you, if we go back to 2013, yeah. who was the better mountain biker? Because okay, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is interesting. Cause, and this is where, and I have to say this, this is where, you know, I came from racing downhill in Ireland and then downhill World Cups. And back then it was either your XC or downhill. And you always, like, you have to understand that's what I grew up with. So it was like, oh, you cycle up hills? I don't do that. I only push a bike. Yeah. And then I go down really fast, okay? That's all I care about. That's what's cool. So when I first saw them like going head to head, you know, I gravitated towards Graves because yes. his style, uh, like sharp elbows, really precise head down low when he was trucking and like really working the bike in corners. And I thought, whoa, that dude's insane, right? But then you got Clemence. And then as I start to get better in Juro and I start to understand how to be efficient on a bike and, and sometimes sit back and let the bike do work, I just thought this guy's absolutely, so, you know, and I got to know Jerome as the years have gone on. I've actually even like rode with him. I've rode behind him at Transmedia, like gifted and such a beautiful understanding of how to let a bike do its job and then how, how he needs to do his job. So I think yeah, at the time, so yeah, yeah. And at the time, I think I would have gravitated towards Graves because, you know, I was basically a downhiller at that point, still thought I was anyway. And I was like, oh, he's sick. Like he can do massive jumps and now he can pedal up a hill for ages like he can do it all but Jerome absolutely gave it to him and I don't think I I guess understood what Jerome 
was doing back then fully. I just thought, oh yeah, he just bet Graves again on the stage. What, what, like, I didn't investigate. Yes. I didn't go searching, mm-hmm. oh, what's he doing? Because he had a bag on, whereas Graves sometimes didn't have a bag <laughs> and he had big forearms. And Jerome, you know, I was a bit of a bloke, I guess. And Jerome is like slender build, yes. like danced the bike down the track, really efficient with energy. And all of those things now I can appreciate massively, but I just didn't have the understanding back then to, to respect it properly. You know, you know, I think going back, and Alicia, I'd love to get onto some of your sort of, your early takes in Enduro. But we were just talking before we start recording about what's cool, what brands are doing that are cool and not. Mm-hmm. I think, None are. Spoiler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but I actually think that's one of the coolest things Cannondale ever did was that partnership with Jerome. Yeah. And I think they've gone yeah, far actually. south with this, trying to be cool and trying to be like kids at the skate park. Because to me, it just reeks of middle-aged men in very tight skinny jeans in somewhere in England being there, like... All G- too true. G- yeah. I know I just said nothing is cool, but some elements of that are cool. Yeah. And like I just mm. thought Jerome Clement when he had that yellow Mavic helmet, which was a repainted oh, D3. Man. Yeah. He was so cool. Yeah. Uh, Seriously. Who do you think? Sorry, just, just to keep, because I, I love where this is going. Mm. Jerome Clements, mm-hmm. peak Jerome Clements. Yeah. Peak Richie Rude, peak Sam Hill. Who, oh. who, who would have oh. won? That's a tough one. In Enduro. Tough one. Oh, who'd have won each other? Like, so who, who, who's, who's, who does, who'd, on their speed day? or coolness? Speed. Oh. Uh, if any, anyone can have at it. Uh, all right. Well, um, I all know them very well. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah. a big, I'm Maybe a big I should deal. give my uneducated um, guess yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uneducated. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say Richie Rue just because the sport has progressed a lot, I think, and he's the one at the forefront of the latest version of its progression, I guess. Yeah, but nice. also yeah. all absolutely incredible. Yeah. He was a disciple of Graves, though. You know, he yeah. was, yeah. He was the I big forearms. I don't know if he passed them down oh, in some sort of ceremony. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but massive. It was all there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Graves had to pave the way, but someone had to sort of pick up where he left off. I think you're right. It's like the younger brother scenario yeah. or younger sister. It's like For you're sure. going to get pushed by your like, eldest. And the then older you're one like, had the harder job, yeah, but yeah. the younger one benefits from yeah. it. Yeah. Like my brother going on his first few nights out, and then I was like, "Well, he's done it now, and <laughs> got in trouble, and now I can do it, and it's fine." But I had um, two older sisters yeah. that were hellraisers, so for me, you're I, fine. I just wanted to play Age of Empires. They were like, "This is sick." <laughs> oh, yeah, he's grand. <laughs> yeah, this is no problem. Um, <laughs> I think you're on it. Honestly, I think from a standpoint right now, if Jerome from 2013 and Sam Hill from 2017, 19 or 18, 19 had to race like current Richie Rude, mm-hmm. you know they're going to lose to him but but that's also like you know Richie's in his prime um, and those boys like if you're listening apologies but you know <laughs> everyone's kind of getting on and they've had their moment in the sun and yeah, I think though they were very special and they rose their game to the point where they needed to do it so they didn't have to go above because what's the point mm-hmm. that you'll injure yourself and also they were yes. held back by technology oh yeah so it's actually very curious because they all bring a different vibe. Very Richie different. actually nearly is in between because he's a clipped rider. He's actually very tidy, doesn't clip out too much. Whereas Sam Hill was like flat pedals. And when Sam was on one, it was just shocking. And he'd do mm-hmm. lines that you didn't really... Everyone thinks like, oh, Sam Hill just goes inside all the time. He doesn't. He just goes inside in a corner you wouldn't have thought of. So that's what he does. And then Jerome was just this... He is in Juro. If you had to pick a rider that is the epitome of the sport, like really delicate on the bike, light, precise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're, they're all, they're all quite different, but yeah, like, like you said, I kind of gone on a tangent here. 
Kurt Ritchie, Kurt Ritchie. But, but I mean, then you got Schladming, Sam to, Hill. Like yeah, Schladming, Sam Hill from back in the day. In any era, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe the joys so are so hard. Yeah. Let's look at the women's field. Oh, that's um, insult. Yeah. And Caroline. I'm not sure this is much easier. Tracy Mosley. Cecile Ravenel. I'm going to pick Cecile. Isabel uh, Yeah. I'm just going to say Cecile. Cecile. But also she was immediately inclined to say Cecile. Cecile's amazing. I, and man, whenever she yeah. comes she's back, she still gives it a go. She's such a cross-disciplinary phenom yeah. too. Tracy was having the one of her for a while. Yeah, and, and yeah. Tracy was, but once Cecile was like, I'm just going to take the rest of my brain out of my head and just put that over there. Honestly, like, because, you know, I'm watching practice all the time. Yeah. Before I did pink bike stuff, I did World Enduro, like, covered uh, their stories. Oh, yeah. And, um, Cecile in practice, like, is nuts. Joking. I and, think Cecile, yeah. Cecile's exceptional at a wider range than is normal yeah, for people. Yes. Like, or at least as well as other riders pace. are, like, really, really ridiculously good at yeah. the thing that they do. Yeah. But Cecile has just, like, more... She can wheelie and try, do trials. She's, yeah, she's teaching incredible. Pauline Pravat, like, a load of skills. Yeah. Like, she's brought her on as a rider so much. I would say, okay, sh- for sheer pace... And all around, like, because Cecile is not scared. I would say Cecile, but then Tracy's such an amazing, she's so good at her craft. And then I think if Anne Cara was pushed more, you know, because she just did it all. She won world champs in mm-hmm. all disciplines. Mm-hmm. So then she was like, oh, see it. Yeah. So. I guess with her, her versus Cecile, in my mind, is sort of the same as Richie Rude versus someone from a different era. It's like mm. Cecile has been the pinnacle of the sport more recently. So, Alicia. Yes. As your once an up and coming EWS racer, <laughs> who was your, who was your, who, who, which skill set would you rather had out of those female riders? Oh, that's not an easy question. I mean, Cecile is kind of an easy choice. She's I scary. I still think like, she's yeah. kind of the best that anyone can be in this sport, especially any lady in the sport. Do you think she'd be Isabeau now if she came back? Man, when Isabel's mm. head is like when she's I don't think so angry on track. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I ha- like. Yeah. I and think I have- Isabel is yeah. absolutely incredible, absolutely mind blowing, but Cecile paved the way for her. But oh, I think yeah. Isabel. Speaking of bad bikes, I think Isabel did it on some bad bikes. Yep. In yeah. a way that other people had better bikes at a time, and she was on that intense mm-hmm. with that twenty nine. Mm-hmm. And she didn't yeah, have much too big. And it was. I think it's really beneficial to also be like an average height rider. Yes, that's so true. Like Isabel yeah. is much smaller than most of us, and yeah. so she has to have a pretty specific bike. Whereas, like, and I ride like you know a very generic large frame that's and it's sweet, incredibly well tested and well developed because it's like the average bike that they designed the rest of the lineup around. So oh, yeah. true. Whereas, like, yeah. if yeah. I were a foot shorter, things would be so much harder for me. No, that's actually, that is so true. Cause I remember I was over in tram getting my forks sorted and mm-hmm. they were like, oh yeah, we got to like figure out how to get Iz's forks to have a lighter tune because she's mm-hmm. so light. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. There's just yeah. so much stuff out there happening behind the scenes that, you know, even if you're in the scene, you don't know it's happening and you don't mm-hmm. even comprehend it. Well, well, for sure. I've actually thought about this a lot with bike testing because yeah. I'm basically the same height and weight as Mike Casimir. Mm. And so, okay. and he also was my neighbor and actually is my neighbor again. So it's very easy to just adopt his test bikes and sort of like have a bike show up and then decide which one of us was going to test it. Things like that. That's handy. Or like go to a field test with him and be able to ride the same exact bikes without really changing very many settings at all. Just because 
I got lucky and happened to be a very average height for a person. Yes. Um, If we do go back to a couple of years ago, I'd I'd like to just get maybe, I I hope it's not too salacious, Mm -hmm. but we mentioned Jared Graves and Richie Rude. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to talk about anything specific, but there was a controversy around um, the water water bottle gate, so to speak. (laughs) But also there was, I mean, maybe it was me on the World Cup side hearing things at the World Cup end, that sort of Mm -hmm. years. There was this perception, I think, that World Cup racing, we have to do all these things with the UCI and drugs testing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Enduro was the Wild West. Um, Do you think that's fair or do you think that's unfair? I think that was fair, but Dan is really the one qualified to answer this. Okay, so I think there was a very strong moral code amongst all riders. So I'll never know what went on fully, but we, or anyone I ever rode with, like I've I've gone on training trips with Martin Mays, like the lad's an absolute animal. He's built like a Dorito, just these big old lats. He's just pure muscle. (laughs) But, um, you know, I've trained with him. Like there's so many honorable riders. Yes, in a sport where you're paid money to do well and also your ego. Mm-hmm. which a lot of the time it's not always about the money for these racers it's about their ego and, and being the best mm-hmm. they can be so there's so much identity wrapped up in ye- oh, whether here. or not you succeed at yeah. doing the thing that and you that's do that's dangerous but you kind of eventually like have enough injuries you're like wait a second like it's just bikes yeah but um, I would say the big thing was like mostly the the morality I felt from a participant and a bystander was very high but I could have been maybe a little bit naive because I wasn't on a pro level like those mm. top riders, okay? So I don't really know, you know, what may or may not have gone on. And yes. it, it, there was, yeah, the truth is we weren't tested and a lot of people were not tested and it went on for multiple seasons, okay? And a few people happened to do occasionally insane results, which for me didn't really add up. Yes. <laughs> not thrown shade, no. but it was just a bit surprising. Well, I mean, I find it funny because there's, and there's a lot of fairness in Enduro. Like I heard a story that Martin Mace stopped to help Sam Hill fix a puncture. Yeah, he's uh, a because gent. he didn't want to win that like that. Yeah, huh. you know, he was like, "That's I'm gonna, very... I beat him, and I'm going to beat him fair yeah. and square." That's very Enduro. I remember I was did a bit of freelance for Chain Reaction Nukeproof in Rotorua, mm-hmm. and um, there was like this weird thing. It was like we bumped into the GT people at the at a gas station, a petrol station. Yeah, and um, Martin was just there, like. <laughs> like um, he, I can't remember what he said. They said they said because it was 2019. They said um, are you going to go do downhill World Cups then? Because he just won. He got second at World Champs. Oh yeah, and it was the first race. And he said, he said not until I've won all the like you know not until I've won the overall. And then it was like just like left it there. Yeah. And then was that like oh that's it was like Sam reigning overall <laughs> yeah champ. Um, that's very Martin. He but, just says how it is. But also you know so there's that obvious level playing field of a puncture. But then there's also a game of suspicion. I think that happens at doping. If they've got, they're doing it. Then I've got to do it. And uh, I'm not saying that's. I'm not saying that's in, yeah. in, in specific to Martin. I'm not saying that's specific to anyone. But like, the, by its very nature, it's it's covert and it's duplicitous. And there's a second guessing which goes on. Yeah, um, and I, for sure, they say there's a lot of that just with the the bike itself. Um, for years, people didn't really know how to train specifically for enduro because you've got to be able to pedal all day. Then you need to be able to sprint like a downhiller. You need to have insane concentration to hold it for that long. Um, you need to be good at a lot of things. And then the bike needs to be very versatile. So like we were talking about earlier, you know, do I go with light tires? Do I do this? Do I do that? Like spoke count, everything matters. So yeah, I mean, then the last thing is like, okay, well, I've I done everything I can, but maybe if they're not checking, maybe I have asthma for this weekend. Or yes. maybe of this or maybe of that. 
And mm-hmm. sorry, I'm not here. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, get uh, people come no. up to me now and they're like, oh, Dan, you're... But um, <laughs> I think it is obviously, it's plausible. Like, it is possible. It's very screened and monitored now. I do think it was never, you know, this sport was born out of mountain biking. Like, it was already mountain biking and then it was like, hey, let's package this and let's turn it into a sport. It was going to make mistakes along the way. And if you don't have structure and a load of rules, people are going to blur those lines. Because I'm telling you, there's some people out there, if you don't have tape either side, they're going to be like, oh, well, I could just ride through the grass over there because it's still technically, mm-hmm. you know. And then other people be like, no, the trail's a trail. Like, yeah, I could. But to me, that's not the, the track. So it just comes down to everything. You've got slight variations and what people think is acceptable based off how much they want it and that definitely leaves grey areas that and that's is. all like you know I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying and at least yeah I really say. really think there there's a lot of sort of grey area behaviour in a sport I think that kind of like you were saying there's a pretty strong code of ethics in enduro like it might be the most kind of like sports like behaviour sport I've ever encountered but there's no really definitive line between what's doping and what's not doping and what's cheating and what's not cheating. And so, yeah, if anyone has the idea that they can get an advantage by like taking a certain supplement or doing some things just like a tiny bit different while keeping it in a gray area of morality, I think there's going to definitely be that. And mm. in so I think it's fair to say, you know, you kind of, you always nearly, nearly breaking into that kind of the sure, upper yeah. but you never quite did. Do you think amongst maybe your your peers that are mm-hmm. maybe the non-factory riders really talented riders who are making mm-hmm. work as a privateer do you think that it would could have been potentially more likely to see doping because there's less scrutiny mm-hmm. oh. you know i actually don't know I've never because really i've been doping for years that. and i haven't been caught once Man, you're, no looking, me, baby. <laughs> you're looking you're looking well <laughs> You're on that, that steroid program, man. You look great. Honey. You're, all, you're all neck. You're all traps. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, there's less. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some riders there did look at least as fit as you do right now. Mm. And that's... Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Well. I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's impossible to say now because we've... It's impossible to say. Yeah. I think there's a lot more manage or a lot more to just figure out and problem solve when mm. you are a privateer. And at least for me, I think it never really would have been on my radar just because I was worried about like getting my bike to yeah. function and How many seeing if I can have like elastic. some spare parts and yeah, figuring you just don't out like think of getting on a steroid so, program. Yeah, for me it was a few steps beyond anywhere that I could reach. Yeah. But also if someone has it figured out, like there are a lot of people out there with much more bandwidth than I ever had mm. and much more of their sporting program organized than I a ever bit did. More conniving maybe. Yeah. Well people so, like came from all different sports to do enduro. Yeah. So I got friends who came from road. Yes. Cyclocross, mm-hmm. downhill, mm-hmm. and they're very different worlds. You know, like I'll be on a spin with a roadie and he's like, oh, you know, I was training before with these dudes in Belgium and they was telling me about how they pay off to get the win. They'll be in a group huh. and they just go here, I'll each give you five grand if you yes. let me take this win. And oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's that and then there's like, mm, I definitely have asthma oh. this week and I've, I know this isn't going to be a, an event where I'll get tested and like, you you know, it might go on a bit of a program. Like, so if you came from that world and you're just thinking, no one's going to get tested. Maybe I'll just see. Because some people are so competitive. They're so competitive, they can convince themselves it's okay. Yes. Yeah, and also that's I- what I think about all the gray area type stuff. Like, 
people can convince themselves almost everything is okay. And like mm, any, I, anything I do all be the time with biscuits. Like, <laughs> like if anyone watching, you know, listens to this, like knows me, you know, I'm built big. And, um, I convinced myself biscuits are, they're not on the band list. <laughs> they're really. on the band list. Wada, so, yeah. Wada bourbons. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Oh no. no it's finally happened. Yeah. Um, so moving on from the maybe sort of difficult teenage years of enduro <laughs> into oh, yeah. this huge world cup enduro that we've got now. Yeah. Um, what's it been like? The <sighs> adaption. I mean, Just I to add to that, I yeah, would be really curious to hear about what it's like kind of running a team during this phase. Yeah. So I'd, um, I'd like to hear what it's like for you as an individual racer, but also as someone who has some responsibility. Yeah. Um, to be honest, like it's not, it wasn't necessarily, you wouldn't call it a selfish endeavor, but, um, you know, I've always been incredibly passionate about biking, everything biking. I mean, to the point where every year I'm just more into it. And then maybe some people would be like, you're sad, you know, your hobby, your sport, your job, your life, it's all bikes, bikes, bikes. But I absolutely love it. It's my world. They're my people. Like I, it's great. Understood. So, bikes are cool. Yeah, bikes are. So uh, with the sport, you know, Polygon, we're, we're going to be releasing a new bike. I was like, we should, you know, between me and Dave, who's the current brand manager for Polygon, we're like, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And I was like, do you think we could convince Polygon to start a team? He's like, uh, it's September, but maybe we can. And uh, I just start reaching out to riders and brands and we managed to get a team together, which was really stressful because I had to tell the riders that I think so-and-so and so is going to yes. join the team, but I wasn't sure. And I had to be really honest, but at the same time, like, I need you to say yes. So then I can go back to the brand and say, okay, Master and Braystone are on board. So yeah, starting the team was like a big, big passion project. It was also, I'm not afraid to throw myself in the deep end, I think. I'm more of the opinion nowadays, just say, yes, I can do it and then wing it until yeah. you really know what you're doing. Yeah. And if you care enough and you're willing to work maybe some weird hours, you can pull it off. So yeah, it was great. It was a big learning curve. Now this year I was able to kind of step back from what we helped create and um, let Martin Whiteley uh, run the logistical side. And uh, and then Zendi, who is um, an employee of Polygon, he's actually taking care of all the kind of product side of things oh, now wow. I still work directly with FSA as an individual and I kind of have ended up being a bit of a liaison still with the team and but um, yeah I've been able to kind of help them a bit more with their socials uh, side of things and um, dip my kind of toes in there but uh, yeah team stuff's been amazing big learning curve um, and also you know I I'm only of a certain speed and I'm not going to be this speed, say, forever. And to be honest, I'm only riding on a speed that, you know, I'm not out there risking my life, like I said earlier, like Jesse Melbourne or people like that. So I kind of know where I fit in the food chain and I'm very interested to stick my head down different avenues. And, and, and that was like, like I said earlier, it was maybe a bit of a selfish endeavor, Was but it was also just like, oh, let's see what happens here. I mean, just to jump in there, mm -hmm. you were quite tough deprecating this time but you've had some fantastic <laughs> results over the years yeah i top 10 like with a dislocated elbow yeah well the, yeah the <laughs> elbow came out yeah the elbow came out a few days before no actually sorry wait what was that oh no wait so the elbow came out a few days before and then i actually couldn't even strap it up because it was that big the yes. swelling but and i missed practice but i did actually that world enduro now being honest we could make this a cool story i was 38 but the following year when it came back to ireland i was eight Yes. But my chain came off twice and I had a big crash. So I was doing a few top fives 
And funnily enough, it was, you know, if it had been a clean day, it would have been actually pretty insane. But um, yeah, I've had some pace being national champion in enduro and DH and various categories. And um, my claim to fame in downhill, it's kind of like one of those sad ones is I was 10th at the halfway point in Val de Sol at the World Champs 2008. Yeah. And nice. then I crashed because I just <laughs> couldn't get down that track. I could either go fast. I think I talked to Ben Castro about this before we had a good laugh. I could only ride it either fast and go for it or really slow. I just, but when I went fast, it was like unsure if I was going to stay on the bike. Mm-hmm. So um, I went for it in what, the world champs and yeah, unfortunately crashed. And then my bottom last bit was pretty quick, but yeah, the middle was like horrendous. I ended up 40th or whatever, but uh, yeah, I've had, I've had a few moments, but mostly I'm just good for clips, you know, 10, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite race in memory? Do I have a favourite racing memory? Um, Discipline, non-specific. Okay. I think one of my sp- special one was finishing that World Enduro um, after dislocating my elbow um, because only like my close friends and my girlfriend truly understood how horrendously the, the sport and that race being in Ireland meant so much to me. I was so wound up about having to do it. I cut the cast off. I took loads of arnica. I actually had to take six painkillers. Like, I'm not actually promoting dangerous. I'm not, like, glorifying this. I'm not saying it's okay. I just want to make that very, very clear. But um, that was really special to me because that was a seven or eight stage long race back then. And to get through that was really special. Um, oddly enough, more special than the following year when I actually did a really good result. Yes. Um, other than that, uh, lining up with my teammates that I helped create that team and wow. seeing them do well. And I'm not a, I'm not a dad, but, uh, I have to say if you create to create something and you see riders coming down and they're under your umbrella and they're doing well and they're happy, um, it's, it's amazing. I, I like that. Yeah. I'd say finishing that World Enduro with the elbow and then getting to be involved with the Polygon Factory Racing team and be the manager on the road and, and seeing those guys like doing well and, and on, honestly just representing the brand well, like being good people. Mm-hmm. That's pretty special. Yeah, that sounds seriously exciting. <laughs> you mentioned social media a little bit. Kind of how does that fit with being a pro bike racer? I would say it's everything. I do not think it's acceptable nowadays and you can agree or disagree or you can say, oh, that's a shame. But I do not think it's acceptable nowadays to be a professional mountain biker and have no online presence mm-hmm. and not, you know, you go out and you lift weights and you go ride a bike. That's working out a muscle and social media is a muscle. You got to, mm-hmm. you got to use it, you know, nearly every day and or else it's going to fade away. And mm-hmm. if you don't use it, it's not going to grow. But it's funny, hey, because I think in some ways Enduro has had a parallel to social media. Hmm. If you go back, oh, yeah. it's, it's grown up at the same kind of rate. And maybe, maybe, maybe Instagram's a bit bigger than the EWS. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I would say that in the initial days, yeah. there were a lot of sort of the first influencers, mm-hmm. I think were kind of like to their brand, like, oh, I can kind of do everything. The brand was like, well, this is an enduro thing. Go and do that. Yeah, You're yeah. a good bike rider. And there was a lot of in- yeah. influencers. Mm-hmm. They weren't even called influencers then. No, no. I remember there was that Rotorua EWS, which was piss sweat through. I think oh, it's the one that God, won Masters man. one. Yeah. And <laughs> so a lot wet. of influencers were in New Zealand to do the summer thing. And were basically told, summoned by these brands to go race the US, and they had a horrible time. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Bryceland, Craig Evans, like loads of people like that, barely made it around. Yeah. They were yeah so out of their depth, like in bits. Now, Bryceland still did good stage times, but the in between, 
they had to like drag him through. He was he was in bits. I heard it was a the, big day that one. I heard of an influencer that not sorry like obviously amazing sponsored <laughs> athlete, amazing, but they were basically a social media or, or media athlete mm. who was on stood on like a factory EWS deal essentially, mm. even though everyone knew what their strengths were, and they injured themselves jibbing on a liaison stage and had to come <laughs> out of an EWS, and the brand was just like, "Are you shitting me? Like we've flown you to this country." Mm-hmm. I should know who this is. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And um, the brand was like, you kidding yeah. me, man? Like, we took you all the way there? I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's a bit of rumor. Oh! I, oh, no, sorry, this is a different... I remember when Charlie Murray, after the race, in when he got his first ever podium, and in fairness, I was kind of at the centre of it, hyping everyone up, because we were doing this big jib sesh after <laughs> the race, and he just got his... He broke himself because he fell. Yeah. Damn. It was his wrist or his hand. Okay. Yeah, so they were... To be honest, they were really sound about it, but yeah, the, the, there has been a very, like there's been a big correlation between enduro and influencing, if you want to call that. Um, it's funny. I remember the Flanagan brothers, Josh yes. Lewis or Loose Dog as all the young people that are listening might know <laughs> us. Um, actually, Loose is here this week. I must say hello. But they were like, you got to get on Instagram. you got to get on Instagram. I'm like, man, I can't be arsed like trying to, can I say arse? You absolutely I've can say said it. I've said it <laughs> twice now. Um, I was like, I can't be arsed you know, post, I'm like, why, like, who cares if I did, you know, whip or whatever, I'm here. And it's so funny. It's just all about like your point of view and your perspective on things. And I just had this, I just didn't have a clue what mattered. And it's not necessarily just about that video. It's just about showing the world, hey, I'm here creating an audience you know, a story, something some people can follow. And yeah, I started and I think it was like 2014 or so mm-hmm. because of them guys in Queenstown on that trip. They're like, just start it. Yeah. And, and audience is a, is a key word there. Mm. Um, it's funny because in some ways, Enduro is this thing where the audience, it's, it's, at least in its early days, it was so mass participation. Almost mm-hmm. the audience was made up of races and aspiring races. Yeah. And now it's very It was different. very peer. Can we talk about what Enduro is now? And maybe the changes for people that don't know that have come in now that it's being integrated with the World Cup series. Yeah. So it's very different now. You know, it's constantly evolved. We'd a uh, long format, we'd have two or three day practice, two day race, big old days, lift, lift, and then there'd be lift accessed ones, then there'd be pedal ones, then we'd have a combination. Um then it went all the way down to a four stage day, um, when we had the COVID years, which absolutely hated they even had a double format which was you'd race on a wednesday and then race again on a saturday or sunday oh yeah that was pretty weird very strange tracks would absolutely get ruined and now you race on a wednesday and just leave it at that right and now and i <laughs> and now we race oh sorry no correction a thursday oh sorry the yeah big, so a little bit Thursdays. better a uh, student night and uh, now we race on <laughs> student hey, here we found vodka red bulls man yeah we raced literally we could have went on a night out when we finished our race it was half eight at night when we finished in leo gang and it was, yeah, it was student night and it was mad. And I was raging. I was like, what is our sport now? Yes. I'm really up, like this merger made sense for probably a lot of people, but world enduros, I just feel like now it's, it's kind of like, oh yeah, well, because we came from doing world enduros, um, we know how to do that. So it's nearly like now it's the eldest kid. We can let that kid raise him or herself. And we'll just deal with these new children that we've got for the weekend. Yes. And it was kind of like, all right, Charlie, you sit over there and you race on Thursday and we're just going to deal with all these like new events on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And they're just, 
where does the warm up act on Thursday? And you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to race World Zeros now in September, and I might get some dirty looks. But honestly, I did feel a bit like oh, like dejected. You're a bit like man. But does that hurt because it's complete out of out of touch, or does it hurt because it's true and the money isn't downhill? And cross country. Yeah, everything. So we got there, we were in a different car park. This is a Leo Gang, by the way, the first merged, you know, big series the super like Cadet Super yeah. Series. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think they're only going to go more and more like that because they may as well, you know, hit it out of the park over the course of six to say eight days, just get them all done. And um, so there'll probably be more rounds like that going forward. But, uh, you know, the whole Enduro Brigade were in a different car park about a kilometre and a half or a kilometre away. We had no foot passengers because you know, everyone's walking into the main area where downhill and XC pits were. Um, their pits were, you know, much bigger, but you, it all kind of, it was all self-fulfilling, I guess, because you're like, oh, they're bigger because they're in the best spots, but they're in the best spots because they're bigger and because companies are like, hey, this sport's packaged better, more money goes into it and therefore more money comes out of it. Yes. So basically, I just got this overwhelming feeling of, wait a second, I as a rider really respect World Enduros. I really do. Incredible sport. So, so difficult to be good at it. To do well at one stage is something, but to do well over the course of a day and do six stages well, that's Mm -hmm. a whole other thing. And then to do well as a series, like nuts. So I have a lot of respect, but it just kind of hit me hard. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, this sport's come a long way. My heart's in it. But unless we figure out how to package it better, they're screwed. Mm -hmm. And, And the sport in general. Like, I... Yeah, it's it was a bit of a hit. Yeah, I mean, I'd fully agree with that. I think that Enduro used to be really grassroots and kind of like an anything goes format. Mm-hmm. There was nothing very consistent. You had no, no idea really how long a race was even going to be or how many days it was going to be, how many stages, mm-hmm. whether it was going to be many hours of chairlifts or many hours of pedaling or like, yeah, you know, eight hours of riding and one hour of racing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, And now they've sort of decided to narrow it down. It's no longer anything goes. It feels like it's a formalized actual way of doing it. It just kind yeah. of feels like they didn't pick the right way. I do think, so they have to figure it away. And I guess they've been mm-hmm. going, you know, they're, they're constantly, it's like anything. If you have an idea and you pitch it to a marketing team, they're going to get that idea and they're going to work through it and then get the simplest form that tells their message and, then, mm-hmm. it, then they're, you know, doing their, their job sure. really well. It's efficient. Yeah, it's efficient. And then they've worked through it and there's a plan. And I think they are obviously, and I know I said this, I think I said this earlier, maybe I thought it's like, oh, they don't care about World Enduros. Like, I'm not getting upset here. I'm just realizing that World Enduros as a sport or the Enduro as a sport, very difficult thing to package to the public so that they can understand it, see it and digest it. For sure. So, We've actually had that conversation yeah. a lot as being media people whose job is to convey all of that to the public. Because we love it's it. It's not hey. easy. Yeah, you love yeah. it because you go out in big rides and you love bikes, right? And I think everyone listening now, if like you love bikes, then you love enduros, but you just maybe mm-hmm. don't know it. And it's very hard to have a sport that's supposed to be enduro, as in long stages, big day, mm-hmm. but then get that across people. You can't video that it's and get everyone. It's very hard to translate it yeah. from experience to something the audience can understand. If we start thinking about, you know, kind of to kind of come into a conclusion here, if I think there are two things, there was, there's the coverage that we have in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the live timing or whether the video is on fucking pink bike or whoever, it doesn't matter. Whatever. And then there's the actual racing itself. What was the best year for the coverage, Alicia? 
and we'll come to you in a second, Dan, and the racing. Like, if we could re- keep repeating a se- what was the season? It was like, that's the one we should repeat. <laughs> what was vintage EWS hmm. enduro? You know, I don't know if I have a clear answer for this, but I do want to say... Don't bring nuance here, Alicia. When, things when, were when getting pretty freezer. good around 2019. Mm. I think the pandemic yeah. really messed with things and disrupted sort of the order of almost everything. Yeah. We we're kind of figuring it out around 2019. I think things were pretty good. And yeah. then we probably would have continued going in a great direction if we all hadn't stopped everything. And is this in terms of the racing itself or the way that it's, the information is presented? I think kind of all of it. It was still okay. very free. It yeah. was a lot of what I really appreciate about Enduro, which yes. is kind of like I mentioned earlier, kind of anything goes like very grassroots. We really felt like we were just making it up as things went. And it feels like since then, we've kind of just kept repeating the same exact solutions yes. that we came up with around then. Because 2019 as well was started, it had that um, New Zealand and I think Australian leg, or might have been Australia, New Zealand. It, it was, it was because there was a oh, the yeah, great Tassian, thing, it used to yeah. go like an Oceanian, mm-hmm. and then the next year it would go to South America. Yeah. And, then it would go, yep. and that was cool. That, I was, great. that was cool. Yeah. So 2018 is actually the year that I raced more Enduros than any other year. I did Chile, Colombia, yeah. Whistler, Spain, <laughs> and Italy that year. <laughs> of course. And that was like, I saw you around the world. Yeah, Um, they were good. That was a good year. That was a good year. And then I was also like kind of burned out and kind of broke after that year. Yeah, they're expensive. Um, So I did like mostly, well, entirely North American rounds the next year. Okay. Um, But still, of course, followed along closely with what was happening overseas and was really excited for everyone pursuing Mm. that. So... A lot of it is also just like that was the epitome year for my personal story. Yes. Things were going really well. And that was the year that I was like, I don't know, feeling like I was developing a lot as a racer. But then also, I think it was when the sport was in kind of the same place that I was. Yes. And Dan, what year was vintage coverage and vintage racing for you? I say vintage race, racing. Um, I think you're actually right. I think there was a load of great things happening around 2018, 2019, that we'll call them the Sam Hill era. <laughs> um, because, you know, very diverse events, got to travel the world mm-hmm. and um, long stages. And then they were starting to use lifts a bit more. Um, but you still pedaled out for a big day. You know, even oh, the I media really liked people. the balance between pedaling and lifts yeah. for a while there. Yeah. yeah. And cool. it seemed very natural and. The days were physically hard, yeah, but they included lifts when it made sense. Yeah, and yeah, I think that was brilliant. Um, and then, and the media was fun. I guess I was starting to find my feet. as like when I start doing stuff um, for the World Enduro, and I was covering. I was like, "Hey, stories have happened on Instagram. We should give people bits and bobs behind the scene." And like, and they were doing. It, I think with Rory a bit, and then I was like, I could elevate that and do it a bit more and then after that I was like I need to approach the biggest people which is Pinkbike and then it was the following year 2019 I think is when I started doing that but oh sweet yeah so but I'd say um I'd say around those years were brilliant and then I think COVID kind of changed things right because I think COVID made them realize wait a second we can still call them world enduros but we can get them done a day or two days right yeah. one day race one day practice and we can get them da- mm-hmm. done and finish the sad thing is right and I think as we go through this, they're either going to have to make the racing shorter, the stages shorter, or have less pros. I'm talking 15 women and maybe 20 or 30 men. 
because if they want to get better coverage and televise this, they're going to have to do smaller fields and maybe four stages or something crazy. Now, they could do a big race on the Saturday with everyone and then the finishers of that race then goes into the Sunday, um, which is all televised stages. I and there's like less that stages idea. and yeah. um, it's just that top tier, more Formula One level. Mm-hmm. And then everyone gets the coverage that they want, but also it hopefully will generate a reoccurring, you know, riders that will come back and want to go and do World Enduros. Because I think that's the really dangerous thing, unless there's a strong Enduro series globally. You know, if I was young, I'm not going to want to go try race world enduros if you got to beat top 30 to even race, you mm-hmm. know, like how do you get to that point? It's a little bit like the way down the world cups have gone, you know, turning up, knowing that you're like, you know, I'm only kind of like between 80 and 100 world cup pace. Why would you go? Well, between that, we're in a, a limited space of not having the grassroots there. Yeah. To support, like, because I think it's a lot like of races. It's very difficult in the US. Yeah. So no, yeah. the grassroots aren't there to satisfy people that actually don't want to travel mm-hmm. to Italy to get an 80th place at a World Cup. Yeah. Turns out that's hard and demoralising. Yeah. and exactly. that's so bad for uh, it's, yeah. yeah. Like, but then it's not the same time. It's, so I hope it gets better. I kind of think that yeah. maybe if we did go to something like that, which I don't wholly disagree with, mm. if they're going to be brutal in terms of cutting the field size, mm. they've got to be brutal in terms of action at a grassroots level. I agree with yeah. that. I think actually having a huge Sufferfest day as the first day is a really good idea. Yeah. And trying to, being able to combine both, like, Big yeah. suffer day and then also very well covered day. Yeah. And like maybe that like going forward, it gives everyone like they'll still be racing and like, you know, that race day, the big one needs to be still needs to be impressive. Everyone needs to feel like, you know, they're special. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go on if you like really are the cream of the crop, you go on for that televised day, which is effectively mm-hmm. like mini downhill because yes, we call this sport enduro, but if we want it to grow bigger or get bigger audience, it's all going to come down to packaging and that's where you're going to get a clash of reality and passion. And mm. you like a big day out on the bike and you want to have maybe some stages where you're like, honestly, that was nuts and I didn't know where I was going and it was tape rewired and it was weird. And that's mm-hmm. really fun. But the way it's going now is everyone has a GoPro, everyone has a track once, they know exactly where they need to go. They watch it five to eight times maybe. Mm-hmm. They go like hell in that race run and you would be shocked that they only practice it once. It's honestly like downhill. And they don't reserve anything. There's 10 minute stages. We load a 10 plus minute stages this year so far. They don't hold back. They don't reserve. So the sport and the level is absolutely insane. But I think now if if we want to move forward and you want to get all these riders good commercial contracts with like brands from the outside the mountain biking world or just mountain bike brands to actually respect that sport, it's going to come down to, well, what are the numbers? And that's once Mm -hmm. again down to social media media, YouTube, like everything, Pink Pike homepage, like the whole works. And that's going to be how they package it because it has to be digestible and it has to somehow rub shoulders with XE and Downhill. Because if it's mm-hmm. not doing that, it's not going to work. So yeah. what I think everyone at home should do is make sure they download Instagram and just <laughs> hashtag Enduro. Or don't, don't protect your mental health. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's wild here. I think some of the, the funny thing about mountain biking, so we need to close this conversation out soon. Sorry, but I-, I also shouldn't say things that are the antithesis of, antithesis of our sport. <laughs> mm. Sorry. But, but I think in mountain biking, there's this really weird thing where the least cool things make the coolest things viable. Instagram makes yeah, my enduro job. more viable. Yeah. Pink bike racing makes is made possible by Pink Bike Academy. 
Do you know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Because it's all about just making sure that everyone is getting eyeballs and it's it's a marketing game as much as anything. Sure. Yeah, it's all in a very interesting ecosystem, isn't it? Like everyone, you know, every sport or discipline or online platform scratches each other's back. So yes. it's all it's mm-hmm. all very connected. But I do think I I can't I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did for Enduros and World Cups, but I don't know what they're gonna do and where it's gonna go. But I can tell you right now from talking to all the writers you know, they did feel a little bit dejected at Leo Gang. Now we've got two mm-hmm. more big World Cups uh, in September where we'll be with everyone else. And I really hope that has a different feel to it. But, um, you know, when you're talking to some downhillers in the pits on Friday morning and they're like, oh, I didn't know you raced yesterday. <laughs> that, you know, that's not good. That's hard, yeah. That's not good. And you kind of think, right, this, you know, and I go back home, I'm talking to mates, they're like, when, when's your race? I'm like, Oh my God, you know. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I think you're totally right. So I think the lesson that we're leaving it here is share the hell out of this podcast. Yes. Don't forget to comment, like, subscribe. <laughs> Click the link below Click, and above. Make, make a second account to comment some more. Oh, Get in an argument with yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah Drive engagement. Yeah. Block oh, yourself then. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. This has been excellent. This has been great. Thank it's you. been great, great chatting with you, Dan. Yeah, Thank unreal. you so much. So good. Thank you. It's been great. And um, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and get in the comments below to let us know what you think the vintage year of EWS was. <laughs> like, subscribe. Follow, follow me. <laughs> the <laughs> Big Bad Wolf. The Big, big Bad Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cheers. Good. Thank you. All right. Thank bye, you. everyone. <laughs>